0: the Neil Haley show here on the total celebrity segment. And now the media giant effect, it'll be really coming uh, soon. Again, my rebranding myself, the media giant, former pro wrestler, six foot 10. Hey, you know what? Especially all the shows have done 9,000 plus. And we have another amazing celebrity by first introduced by co-host, Greg Hanna from Toss C3. Greg, how are you? And you're excited about our guest
1: doing awesome. Yeah. I can't wait to talk to him.
0: All right. So I, am very interested and I got to remind myself back in the days of Mad TV and he has to bring me back like do a timeline deal. So he's a former SNL star and Mad TV star and now he has a podcast, a deep fake podcast where he's interviewed people like Bill Borer and Alec Baldwin. I'm excited to welcome to him. Jeff Richards. Jeff, how are you, man? What's going on? Hey, yo, good to be here. All right. So let's just talk about it. Let's just jump right to it. And the way I'm going to jump right to it is specifically enough look at comedian was that you wanted to be a comedian when, right out of the womb for your class con what was it
2: yeah i just always had that instinct to to kind of pop off or wait for a moment in the classroom and then just you know just try to throw things off a little bit yeah so i always went for the punchline and yeah and always did voices and and you know uh imitations of people it mimic uh, a bit you know since i was little yeah yeah yeah
0: Okay, a little. What was the what impersonations did you start out with? What were your
2: favorites? Uh, I started out with Letterman. I used to watch Letterman when I was like twelve, uh, it, it it's it's nice to see it. Good to have you here. <laughs> you would hope at some point, and again, I don't know when. Uh, at some point, uh, things might change. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and so you started that right off the bat, and that end, and that is that where you looked at kind of where your career was going from there what what happened then like you wanted to be it do this
2: when do you say this is going to be something i want to do i think in college i was in um uh study abroad and i was in in italy and i i didn't have much tv there wasn't much english stuff so i was just doing impressions to all the students and i get laughs and i thought well if i could try to figure out how to do stand-up maybe i could you know do stand-up so i came back i I was in North Carolina. I came back and I did open mic at a club and I just fell in love from the first night. Yeah. You know? All right. Good, Greg.
1: No, that's pretty amazing. Um, so that's a great question. Did you enjoy doing stand up in front of a live audience more? Or I guess, I mean, is Saturday night live? Is it is it a live audience as well? I and mean, you really can't tell uh, all the time yeah. on TV what's real and what's not.
2: Yeah. It's live. Yeah. It, it is live.
1: Okay, cool. And so, so tell me, I used to love to watch Saturday Night Live, you know, when I was younger, don't have the time now. Plus I, I can't stay up as late as I used to. Um, but tell, tell me some stories like from Saturday Night Live, like, like what's something that you can remember either like one of the cast members or I don't know, were you around with Chris Farley at all or any of those times or
2: that my first year was Will Fer- Will, Will Farrell's last year. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, I remember one time, uh, just a surreal moment. There were a lot of just surreal moments. One time I was in the um, uh, bathroom or I wasn't in the bathroom, but there was a security and I wasn't in the bathroom yet. There was a security guy in front of the bathroom and Mayor Giuliani was in the bathroom going to the bathroom. And I walked in, I was dressed just like drunk girl, all makeup, dress, everything. And I just was standing in the urinal going to the bathroom and look over there's Rudy Giuliani. It was just, just such a weird moment. You know, very strange.
0: What did you do when you did you say anything to Rudy?
2: I think I did. I think I just gave one of these, like, "Hey, how you doing?" (laughs) But yeah, I was full. It was weird, you know. But it was it was really cool. Yeah.
0: And then, and when you you the character drunk girl go into more drunk girl and how that developed that
2: character. Uh, I I was doing stand up in San Diego, and there was just a girl in the crowd that was yelling out, I she wouldn't listen to me when i was talking to her as myself so i just started impersonating her and yelling back at her as she yelled at me and kind of shut her up that way and that's how it started um basically you can't stop a drunk girl you just have to get out of the way you know (laughs) that's how that happened yeah and then did you think it would go to that point where you're playing that character never even thought not even close who came you know? up with the
0: idea did you come up with the idea to, with the writers or how did that how did that
2: happen from that from that uh that moment with the audience that dialogue became the sketch for the first one you know just uh, being real combative and crying and all the different whirlwind of emotions uh drunk people have. <laughs>
0: Uh, uh, so tell me some of your mentors you had as a comedian who, who are
2: some of the people that helped you out um harlan williams has always been a great guy for advice and a, just a great friend um different people let's see um, um well um from the show or just stand-ups just stand-ups in general Stand-up brought,
0: show uh, any show anytime
2: uh, in your i went on tour with him for a couple of years and He's a great guy. He's coming on the show this week on Wednesday. Um, And, um, yeah, those guys and Chris Kattan, you know. um, um, Yeah, those are the main ones. Um, Yeah, those are the main ones. Yeah.
0: So so tell me, as a comedian, like your ultimate goals as a comedian, have they changed throughout the career to now? You know, because you're talking naming some of these names they went on to – TV, not just TV, but also, you know, films and things like that. Was that ultimately a goal for yourself as well as a comedian to to go further into acting and other films and things like that? Is that a goal of every comedian, do you think, especially when they're doing stand
2: up? No, I don't think so. I think, you know, some some guys want to act, some some don't. Um, I did. There's so many things I like to do. So I even like to do music, like funny music stuff. Um, but you know, it's just like a little of this, little of that, you know, it doesn't have to be everything all at once. You know, I have a lot of fun with, you know, different, different aspects. All right. Go
0: right? that's
1: Interesting. You know uh, you, you mentioned Neil, you know, movies and stuff and comedy So Adam Sandler jumped into mind for that. Did you ever work with Adam Sandler at all, either on SNL or bump into him out in the world or
2: bump into him a couple of times. I met him a couple of times. Um, he's a great guy too. Um, but no, never, never worked with him. No. Your experience on Mad TV and what Mad TV was about. Tell us a little bit about
0: that experience.
2: Oh, I don't know. I was just so fresh and young and, you know, it was like, you know, I'd started doing standup maybe a year and a half prior. So I didn't know what to expect. And at that time I'd never done any, like really any acting at all. Um, so I was kind of thrown into it. But I think I did pretty good for what it was. I There's this one sketch where I played Letterman, again, Letterman. Um, and it was this long sketch. and There was a lot of choreography and there's a lot of stuff to it. And I got through it and I was like, okay, maybe I can do this. I think I can figure this out. And then, you know, got on SNL, you know, what, like eight months later or something. Nice. And then I,
0: yeah, yeah. Definitely. The, those opportunities happen. And so that opportunity happened through Mad TV and different things after Doing SNL and different things is stand up your favorite thing just to perform. Would you say go out there and perform as a comedian?
2: Yeah, I do love the live, the live aspect of it. Um, I just I liked improvising a lot too. That's why I like my show because it's, you know, it's thirty to forty minutes. It's all, you know, improvised, and the guest doesn't really know what's going to happen and. You know, that's, that's fun to me. Cause you just have to get it on the one take, you know? Um, and that's a lot like SNL, you know, you have to get it on the one take. So exactly. And that's how I just try to, because I went live for so many
0: years of radio. I make my podcast the same way. I'm like, whatever, we're not live, but we're going to play it. So give us an example, of deep fake, define deep fakes. I had no idea what that meant. And if we were guests on your show and deep fake, how would it work?
2: Well, um, if you're doing an impression with me and it was a double deep fake, we both have the deep fake on our face, which is basically, you know, it's an overlay computer overlay of, um, you know, all these different, uh, composite images of, uh, the person you're going to impersonate, um, or, or just put a face over. And it's just like this thing. It's like a mask. Like you can't turn your face too much this way or that way or it'll blur out. Um, and it's just, it just looks really good. If you have a really good uh, camera to film it on, it, it looks very, I mean, I mean, a lot of people get fooled by it, you know, they mm. think it's. So oh. um, so uh, so. you're saying,
0: so give me an example of the character. So if I said I would be someone, okay, and you could rip on my Kermit the Frog impersonation, um, <laughs> and, uh, how I impersonate <laughs> Kermit the Frog, if I was Kermit the Frog and you were somebody, so-and-so, we the, it would look like the character as it's a deep fake in the podcast. Am I correct? Am I on the right track? We
2: do, do it after you recorded it.
0: Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Put it on after. So that's... Yeah. Go ahead,
2: sorry. Yes. No, i just saying what I'm doing now, too. I, I'm doing like an unfaked. I'm doing it just with no deep fake here and there, too. Just, so people remember, you know, it's me and or someone at least because sometimes you just forget if you see that face and it looks just like it and it sounds like it and you just you just forget so i think it's good to mix it up that's what we're doing
0: okay so you do your letterman i'll be kermit the frog okay
2: let's just go ahead
0: hi ho kermit the frog here thanks for being on this deepfake thing i appreciate it
2: (laughs) well it's nice to be here and let me just say right now you look like a million bucks
0: well, I'm yep. I'm feeling a bit green after COVID, but I'm doing okay.
2: By the way,
0: and and also Miss Piggy's recovering very well.
2: Right, right. Well, you know she's a pig, so don't don't have any grand expectations. Uh, uh she might she might go back and forth. It's difficult to say. <laughs> <laughs> That's great.
0: All right, Greg, ask a question. Now, I mean, I I never thought I'd be doing this, but see, I ended up doing this before. I I like improv. I never did improv. Uh, Jeff, can I can I do that? Like, let's say we came up with the two things. You know, like whose line is it anyway? And all the the how they would create certain things and then and improv. Do you enjoy improv? And I'm gonna let Greg ask a question.
2: I love improv. Yeah, it's it's the best. It's- because of
0: professional wrestling, I would, could do an improvisation and saying, we're going to wrestle each other, and I did this, I forget, with someone from Whose Line Is It Anyway, and I forget who I interviewed. Isn't that terrible? I interviewed so many people. I need to have a list, and my producer says, hey, this is who you interviewed. I love it because it's easy. Remembering lines is hard. I tried auditioning a couple times, and I didn't like memorizing lines. I like to create my own characters, do my own thing. Maybe I should maybe someday get and do a comedy or something but improv's fun because let's just say we were coming up with an idea that you were going to wrestle me and we could do that after greg asked a question this is me being i guess improving in in the show i just care less i'll talk about whatever that's how i enjoy things when you're in a scripted thing i can't stand scripted so that's why i like improv so is is that one of your fun things? Would you do different improvs or you had to do that in, in, in acting sometimes or go and do certain things? Have you done
2: a lot of improv types of? Oh, yeah. I've done a lot of improv and and I just like it because it's it, you're so free and you, know, you don't have any responsibilities uh, except listening and reacting and being in the moment. And, uh, yeah, I really like that. But I also like acting because you have to make it, seem in the moment it has to be you know you have to really do it a certain way so it feels spontaneous and i like that challenge
0: how do you remember lines i think i find it difficult just especially if i didn't get a chance to memorize those lines completely if it's such a long thing like a script scripted thing that's hard i never thought of that till i saw what you guys go through if it's like let's say 10 20 paragraphs you got to memorize that's tough that's yeah. not tough, especially if you don't feel it and you're trying to read it. How, is it a photographic memory?
2: Is it something actors have? Its ability I, to do that. I think you hit it on the head. I think the best actors uh, just have that photographic memory. They they memorize the best. The best actors can just if they have it. If you have it on tap, it's ready to go. You know th- those are the best actors. When you're when you're struggling to think of what's next, then it takes you right out of the moment. So oh, interesting. That's a good
0: idea to look at it, memorizing it like you're memorizing a test, like I did in college. I can memorize 150 pages. So maybe maybe acting could still be there for me. Who knows? All right. Wow. Go, ahead. <laughs> all right go ahead, Greg, with a question. That well, you that's want something
1: new. We got to explore that a little bit later, yeah. Neil. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. So, Dr. Phil.
2: Um, Dr. Phil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you all change your life, you gotta make changes in your life. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh,
1: uh. Awesome.
2: I kind up next.
0: All right. I'm, now a- I'm gonna have to do Elmo.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is Elmo, and I'm excited to be on your show, Dr. Phil. Tell me a little bit of more about what I'm why I'm on here. I've made a lot of mistakes, Dr. Phil.
2: Do you like yourself? Do, do you understand who you are? Because I'm looking at you and I'm just thinking, hey, this guy don't know nothing. You know, he just, he don't, he's moving his neck around, but he's not listening to his internal problems. You got a problem.
3: What is
0: my problem that I always want to go and sing?
2: I can't define it, you know, but look how you're just, look how your eyebrows are up. That's not good. You got to get your eyebrows down. (laughs)
4: because
2: That's great because you're you're
0: (laughs) going after me. So that's great improv. This is the fun thing. And, you know, and people just talk a little bit more about the deep fake podcast in that way (laughs) that your podcast, the guests, you're telling them a character. Do you like some of the podcasts you've done with some of the, the huge celebrities you've had? What characters have you guys done? So, people need to go check that out. Like, what character were you? And,
2: well, I do Jimmy Fallon, you know. That's ah, the coolest thing in the world. Hey, you doing, man. How you doing, man. It's the coolest thing in the world. It's so good to be here, you know. It's incredible. I found a paperclip the other day, you know. You know what a paperclip is, you know? A twisted piece of metal, you know? When I first saw it, I was like, oh, my God, no way, you know. <laughs>
0: And who was the guest? This guest was playing what, who they play.
2: I had Kevin Farley do it. Russell Peters do it. Uh, Charles Fleischer do it. I've done Fallon a few times.
0: Yeah. No, but I mean, your guest, the celebrity guest, who, pers- who do they say to act like?
2: Oh, they don't. That doesn't always happen. That's very rare. Usually I have them on as themselves. And you interview as that person. That's yeah. so
0: cool. Yeah.
2: Uh, James Austin Johnson from SNL does Trump. He he did uh, Billy Bob Thornton, and I did uh, Gene Wilder, Willy Wonka.
0: (laughs) I have to off-air talk about some of my other personalities, my dual personalities, but I can't do it here. (laughs) Why? I can't do my
2: dual personality. Give me one. one. Oh, man, you're killing me. Oh, no. Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman, and you pick somebody. Oh, 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 you were
0: talking that way. I was – okay, okay, let's just go – uh, I was gonna think about doing one that's a, a fake character. Well, I'll be it. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing fantastic. You know, and you know, being here, living in Texas, and no longer in Triadelphia, West Virginia, I I tell you what, I really enjoy how much more interesting people in Texas are.
2: This is this is Dustin Hoffman. <laughs>
0: Wow, Dustin Hoffman, I, I, I think I might have watched you at one point in time. I'm just well, too busy, you know, doing my thing.
2: Well, I don't know what you're thinking, but it's it's intruding on my space. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me what to do. Uh, but you've got the problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh,
0: this is fantastic. <laughs> this is not what I expected. I'm sure Greg didn't expect this. But this is the fun thing. And you're just really good at imp- impersonating people. What do you do? And I've talked to some major people that have done it, like the voice of Bart Simpson I've had on my show. I had the voice of Winnie the Pooh. I've had different people. And they talk about how they create these characters or are able to do this. What do you, is it just practice, continue practice, listen to yourself? You know, some of these other voiceover artists, what do
2: you do to kind of do it, D- to make it fun? What, do you, what are your thoughts? I mean it's sort of a knack it's a bit of a knack but you know I think you just hear somebody's rhythm and and it speaks to you and you have an opinion of of how to play it cuz it's almost like it's almost like you know not just mimicking but um mocking in a way because you're you're kind of putting an edge on it so I, I don't know I think It mostly comes from not really trying, just listening, let it get in your brain. And maybe it's one you can do. That's how I do it, you know.
0: All right. I'm busy doing this with my my kids sometimes and also my former students. I did the Kermit the Frog voice. I'll have to do this one. Boy, people are going to want to get back in this one. And this one is the best. The Rubber Ducky song. Are you ready? And then you can ask a question. You give feedback. We'll just let's take this American Idol. And I'm going to sing the Rubber Ducky song, and you can be one of the judges. And you can pick any of your characters, okay? Okay. All right, let's go. Rubber Ducky, you're the one. You make bath time
2: so
4: much fun. (laughs) Oh, poor little ducky.
2: Most ducks don't have long, and neither do I. This tiny speck of dirt is not just a speck of dirt inside a mustard spiders okay that one got a little weird didn't it yeah well who's that that's david Attenborough. i
0: see i wouldn't know Uh, that's fantastic i love it this is this is call improv okay greg ask a question that the final question and i might have one more question
1: no you can go ahead and take it i'm enjoying this too much
0: It's gonna be this is okay. So Jeff, your latest projects, is it podcasting or also can we find you other places other things as well?
2: Yeah, I'm gonna have a show at Oregon's Best Winery in um uh, it's September 17th, this Saturday at seven o'clock, Oregon's Best Wine.net. They have great wine, delicious wines, a little small winery. Where's that located
0: in? Oregon's best Aurora, Oregon. Aurora, Oregon. Okay, so my listeners are in Aurora, Oregon definitely check it out. So you basically on your website is everything there to basically
2: link tree.com slash Jeff Richards or Instagram is the Jeff Richards.
0: Jeff, did you ever think this was going to happen? Did you find out a podcast radio host wants to do impersonations? Now give me your take on some of them. Are they pretty good? Are they okay?
2: Would you rank them? What would you rank them? I think they're good. Um, I think maybe just go even farther with, exaggerating it i'm not know. prepared today it's, it's a, a is just, that, a just a note
0: i appreciate <laughs> that from an expert like you so what do you think when people recognize you most what do they think they see you most from jeff
2: probably most the best to know yeah uh, but um you know i did a few different things and i got a movie coming out mistletoe massacre will be out in christmas too so
0: all right but, you're gonna come back on right You're going to come back on, and we're going to have another fun thing when Mistletoe Massacre comes out, right? Yeah,
2: absolutely. Thank you.
0: It It was a lot of fun. All right, Gregstossc3.com, neilhaley.com, the media giant. And you know what? I'm going to challenge Jeff Richards to a pro wrestling match on the next broadcast, and we're going to have our little promos of who's going to win in the match. I'm legitimate 6'10", 280 pounds. I'll make my comeback in the ring against Jeff Richards. Are you ready, Jeff?
2: Yeah, but I, I, I'm i going to be oiled.
0: Oh, no, no, no. That's not that kind of wrestling. You're not being – uh. uh See, that's, that's my Andy win. Kaufman. You're not Andy Kaufman now. Come on now. Oh, come on. I was watching uh, the Jerry Lawler uh, documentary about Andy Kaufman. If you've not seen that documentary or you've not seen Man on the Moon, uh, I love that. Okay. Well, we appreciate it. Jeff, and so, and all uh, your websites, all your different things, so you're doing a lot of comedy. The podcast seems so fun. I'm going to definitely check it out. And man, you get in these celebrities, we're definitely going to have to chat again. I appreciate it.
2: Very cool. Thank you, Neil. All right.
0: You're listening (laughs) and watching The Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment.
5: Hi, and welcome to Women's CEO and Reflection, a podcast dedicated to personal growth and mental health discussions with women CEOs across the globe. It's here where inspired women get candid about what drives them to succeed and the personal challenges they've encountered on their path to success so if you're a woman on a mission this is the podcast you don't want to miss so sit back relax and let's get candid hi i'm marisa jones and welcome to women ceo and reflection i'm joined by my co-host neil haley and today we have a guest who is the person that you need to go to when you want to talk about finances Tara Nolan is a money strategist who supports women through her company, Nolan Financial Partners. Tara combines 26 years of strategic military planning with her knowledge of finance and investing to provide comprehensive, personalized planning to women entrepreneurs and professionals.
3: Welcome, Tara, to the show. How are you today? Marissa, I'm so happy to be here. I was excited when you reached out to me because I love on this adventure of business connecting with more and more women, you know, like we were just talking before how we tend to be in male dominated in industries and it's fun when you have when you open the door and have more of us around.
5: I love it. And, and one of the things, you know, the focus of this podcast is talk about personal growth and mental health, and I haven't really seen much of that. So that's why I'm really glad that uh, women such as yourself are, are willing to come here and talk about that aspect of running your own business or being a CEO and a founder of a company and what it takes to, um, to do that from a mental health perspective. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you got into to, to running Nolan Financial Partners?
3: Well, that's, a, that's to keep it short. I uh, I went to the the Air Force Academy, and when I was there as a young cadet, sitting in one of the classes, I remember one of the guys sitting in the in the room was kind of kicked back and talking to his buddies, and he was like, "You know, I'm gonna invest forty dollars a month in a Janus fund, and by the time I'm 40, I'm gonna be a millionaire." And I was just <laughs> sitting there going, "What? I'm just trying to to get through biochemistry." <laughs> and, and it kind of the first time it dawned on me, I'm like. Uh, there's things out there in the world that people know about that I don't know about. And so that kind of planted that seed. And, uh, I, early on I had some people approach me about doing some kind of financial planning, which was of interest, but I had to go fly airplanes first. So I went out and did that for about 10 years. And then I started looking around again to see, you know, what did I want to do in this transition, you know, after flying and, and doing that, because I didn't want to go just sit in a, in an office, you know, for nine to five. So I started looking around And I decided I liked this idea of educating people about finances because I was like, I'm a smart person, but there's things I just didn't know. And if you didn't grow up with it, you didn't get it in school. And so I liked the idea that I could combine educating, speaking, and teaching all together wrapped up in a business that was going to help people feel better about their lives. So that's kind of was the genesis to get in the, in the shorts, quick uh, wrap, wrap up of how I got to where I am right now.
5: That's so great. Um, finances is something that uh, everyone always struggles with, right? And uh, women, especially, right? It's it's um, They're used to having, you know, old school mindset where it's like, oh, I'll, I'll let my husband take care of all the finances. I'm not going to do it for them myself or, you know, and then so, sometimes they get you know, into a situation where they are by themselves and they don't really know where to start. Um, What kind of advice would you give to women who are just looking to to start learning about how to manage their own finances?
3: Well, I think the first thing (laughs) is just to give yourself permission that you can do it. One of the, the stories I share in my book is one of my favorite clients. Actually, she's single. She has a PhD in math and she is does computer programming now. And when we first met, she's like, I'll kill you if you tell anybody this. But I just always felt like there was going to be a man to take care of the money, but here I am 55 (laughs) years old and, and I guess that's not going to happen maybe. (laughs) And, And so I think it's just, it's interesting how these things are in our society, whether you're aware of them or not. So for women that are in that situation, whether you're married, single, or, and you've never done it, I always encourage you to to get educated right the best way that you mitigate risk is getting some education but then that's where the challenge becomes because there's no lack of financial information out there we're just inundated by it and one of the things i talk about in the book uh, is that it's hard because also all the media and the commercials make you feel like you should be able to do it by yourself so it's overwhelming you feel like you're supposed to be able to do it by yourself you don't want to be the chump that gets taken advantage of or pays too many fees and so it's pretty a, a fairly daunting process. So the first step for someone who just doesn't know anything is find someone you trust and say, can you connect me with a good financial planner that you trust? Because it starts there. Money is so emotional. It's much more about emotion than it is about math. And there's a lot of good advisors out there. And the key is just finding someone that you resonate with, find someone you feel safe with, and just start right there. And there should be no thing as such thing as a stupid question. If someone makes you feel stupid, yeah. that's not the person you should be working with.
0: Exactly. They got to be able to educate uh, the, the client to understand specifically where their money's going and looking at their money every day, especially with how it works with the market and things like that, but also the money they're making. How are they saving? Are they spending too much? Really looking at their financial things so they can invest more in things and really look towards the future, not just the present, which a lot of people do.
3: And that's, that's absolutely right, Neil. And I love that you said that. And with my book, Money Moves, I joined a workshop to really put it together. And I shifted it from being a a typical how-to to to much more story-driven and kind of making it accessible so that as you go through the book, you're going to identify with some of the different case studies and the different people. And The goal of the book is to walk you through the process of what kind of questions should you be asking so that when you go and interview a financial planner, that you have good questions to ask and you have a good sense about if someone's giving you good answers or if someone is just pandering to you or just trying to get your business or treating you like you're stupid. You don't want any of those things
5: and money is definitely a mindset and and you see all these these podcasts and videos and people saying you know you have to have an abundant mindset when it comes to money and prosperity and stuff but but there's no real answers out there sometimes cuz like you said there's so much information Um, How do you take your military background and kind of the mental, because there's a lot of mental, you know, mindset work when you're in the military, right? So how do you take some of that
3: and apply it to your business um, and and support your clients? Well, that's one of the things that I did that was interesting is I approach it holistically. And so I kind of turned it on its head. So when I started out, you know, I went and worked with the company. and We, we did a very typical thing. Like it felt like every person that walked in the door, no matter who they were, we sold them some insurance and we put them into an IRA and those are good things, but we did that for every single person. And I remember asking after I had been there for a few months, I said, so this is great, but when do we really start helping people? And the blank look I got from my people I was working with surprised me because they didn't under, they didn't even understand the question. So, you know, from my military planning experience, you have to look at the entire picture to go, here's where I am. Here's where I want to go. How do I get there versus just let me just buy the best mutual fund I can and cross my fingers and hope so it works out. And that was the way I was being taught as a initially as a typical financial advisor was, Get someone in an IRA, get someone, um, you know, some insurance. And those are like maybe two of an entire financial world that you have to look at because you do want insurance because you do want to have protection and you do want to have an IRA because of the tax advantages and all those good things. But what about your emergency fund? What about your kids going to school? What about um, if something happens, if you're the primary breadwinner in your family, you know, there's just, just so many different things to look at in terms of the holistic picture that if you just pick out one or two things you might do well in well, those one or two areas but everything's not going well and when you look at it holistically yeah. it makes such a difference
0: that's the big thing that you know you look at is if you can teach people the specific financial one-on-one you know we all look at the market and how we're going to invest and then what we're going to do but when you have a financial planner who's going to look at those the the holistic point of view of how, how do you have a written budget are you looking at specifically what you're spending each and every week? Are you setting goals for yourself how to make more money? Maybe find another way to, to add an additional income. All these things, if you have a planner that's thinking about those things and thinking long term, are you going to stay in the same job? Are you looking to look career advancement? All these things will make it a win win situation between the client and the, uh, and, and the, uh, and the, And, you know, with a person who's helping analyze all this stuff, the financial planner, right?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Like one of the first questions I always ask people is, so how much is enough? And, and they, nobody (laughs) knows. I mean, could you, most people can't answer that question. And so if you don't even know how much is enough, how do you ever know when you can get off of that wheel and and stop running and, and know that you have arrived? And if you don't know, you know, what is, what does financial success look like for you? because it's gonna be different for you than it is for me. You know, you're gonna have, not everybody wants to have three horses and clean out stalls like I do every day. Some people (laughs) wanna live in the city. (laughs) So you you can't even begin to, to give someone advice about how to invest in the market if there's not even a clear picture of where you're trying to go. And so you have to tie in that mindset and the holistic view to make it all work together. I mean, we've all been through enough training to know that goal setting works. And if you if you take the time to write out what your goals are, your, your short and long term goals, and you, you put that down, then the actions that you take start to align. And so you start to get that uh, synergy of action with aligning with what you're trying to do. And I think what you said
5: about goals is so important.
3: I've never had
5: financial goals. Like I've never, I've just never done it. And, you know, I'm in my fifties now and it's like, okay, I really should start putting financial goals, but I spent my, most of my career implementing financial systems, you know, rounding to the nearest million. So when I look at my budget, it's like, yeah, you know, I'm just going to take it day by day, right. Cause it's a completely different focus. Um, but when you think about you, you know, you talk about the whole portfolio, right? And there's all these different aspects of, of your money. Um, and and that each one of those aspects, they fluctuate day to day mm-hmm. to sometimes to an extreme. And your clients probably like freak out and call you constantly. How do you separate um, you know, yourself from from picking up on that stress that they, you know, when they're calling oh, you because the stock market drops or their 401k, you know, lost 50 bucks yesterday or their crypto is not doing whatever that looks like, right? They're probably calling you stressed out all the time. How do you separate that and what do you
3: do to, to balance your mental health? Well, I love that question because that is a key that you really have to separate my emotion from their emotion because i need to be the objective advisor but i really kind of turned it on its head from the way i was taught was stocks bonds mutual funds all of those things real estate those are tools and so when i sit down with a person we start out with what is your goal and then we figure out on a, on a scale of like stuffing money underneath your mattress to investing in cryptocurrency you know how much risk do you want in your life and so we figure that out ahead of time and like with the market, we know, I can't guarantee it's going to, when it's going to go up and when it's going to go down, but I can guarantee you that over the course of your lifetime, it's going to go down. And so we talk about how you're going to manage that and handle that stress as we create the plan. So when the market drops, I don't have people calling me because I push information out and say, Hey guys, the market's dropping. Remember we talked about this and here's what we're doing. Here's what we're going to do. Take a deep breath. You're going to be okay. Okay. So we build that right into the plan so people know what's going to happen when the market drops, because we, I can guarantee you it will drop. And so we don't wait until that happens and be in reactive crisis mode. And I think that comes from my military background. You know, one of the first things I did as a lieutenant in the Air Force was help plan a deployment moving 15 airplanes and all the people that had to support that over to the Middle East and having a plan that was about 80% effective wasn't going to work. We had to have the 100% solution. And so I like to build that into the financial planning is to have, you know, your safe money and your play money. So that way you have stuff that's in the market and can go up and down, but it doesn't affect your food, clothing, and shelter money. That's stuff that you got to have. And so I, I would like to approach with that philosophy to try to build in as many guarantees as is possible in the world when we never have any guarantees. <laughs>
0: That's that's the key thing. And, and that's the whole thing about the fluctuating market. What's happening? The best thing is to stay the course on the market. And I just, I think that more and more, you're probably learning the other alternative ways of revenue streams, real estate, different things like that, to have a diversified portfolio and to look at other options because at the end of the day, do we know the traditional market's always going to be right in in this in, in the history of things? And I think that the biggest thing that you bring as a value, if everyone has a financial planner like you, would be the daily budget, would be saving money, would be investing in the right things, would be in you know, what house you purchase, what cars you're purchasing, all these different things looking at the long term so that we're going to live a lot more years and we're not going to, we're not just going to be in the, we're not just going to be in this world. We're going to be in other planets at one point in time, the next generation of people. So we have to understand that now and and plan for the future.
3: I, that's absolutely right. And I love that you said that because what you do at 20 is not going to be the same thing that you do when you're 50. So a lot of the financial advice that I'm going to give to my clients is going to evolve. You know, I like to build build relationships with people that we're, we're in a lifetime relationship together. We're not one and done because the, as you grow and as life changes, you're going to make different decisions. And as you, um, you build more of a nest egg, there's money that you're going to protect. And then there's what you're going to do. So all of these decisions, if there was a black and white answer to something that would be much simpler, but that's the thing is the answer is always going to be a little bit of, it depends because that's where you have to have that relationship to say, what are your goals? Where are you in your life? you know, what you're going to do for somebody who is is single is going to be very different for the my friend who has 10 kids. And so you can't possibly be giving the same kinds of advice to people and, and figuring that out. So it's all about that holistic approach that starts with getting to know the client as an individual, getting to know you as an individual to figure out what success looks like for you, you know, what kind of a life are you living? Are you going to be the person that's really, you know, putting any hours at your law firm and going to be saving a lot of money? Or are you going to be that entrepreneur that's going to have that lifestyle where you make big chunks of money and then you go for months where you don't make any money. And so <laughs> right. there's, there's just a lot of different ways that you can get at it. And, and I liked it, Marissa, how you said, like you, you've never had a financial goals. And I love that because money in and of itself is not that interesting. It's just the tool that allows us to have experiences that we want to have. Right. That's true.
5: And, and I like that you educate your clients so they can be prepared, so they're not reacting and they're just taking action when, when there's changes. Um, I do a lot of similar work. It's, it's like the coaching that I do, right? I prepare my clients with tools and, and the knowledge that things are going to hit you in life. You know, things are going to knock you off your feet in life, but instead of reacting, when you have the tools and the resources and the know-how to act instead, um, you can get through it, and and you know, you can get through it without it being a complete meltdown uh, or you know, turn your life upside down. That it's absolutely true. And so, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was going to ask you uh, because with time's running out, but I wanted to ask you about your horses. Um, uh, You know, what do you do with your horses? I'm sure that really helps with the kind of maintaining balance because you seem very calm and and uh, Mm -hmm. relaxed. (laughs) And I'm sure that's kind of all the time. I just feel like that's part of your demeanor. So uh, how do the how do the
3: horses play into that? Oh, they um, they're my essential because I, I actually volunteered at the Therapeutic Riding Center because. For the wounded warrior center, it was helpful for people who are in wheelchairs. And one of the interesting things with the horses, it was really good for autistic kids because they would do their speaking on the back of a horse, but they won't do it in the land. And what I realized is by having three horses, I have my own little daily therapeutic riding center because it keeps me centered. And I think horses are just very present time animals and they don't have time for your, what you're worried about because they want you to be right here right now, or they'll dump you in the dirt and say, come back when you figured it out. (laughs)
5: That's great. I love it.
3: Well, thank you for being on the show, Tara. We're out of time. Uh, Where can people find you? Definitely um, visit my website, www.nolanfinancialpartners.com. And uh, you can find my book there. You can also find my book, Money Moves, on Amazon or Barnes & Nobles. And then I'm definitely on LinkedIn and Facebook. You know, I have my podcast that I do. So there's a lot of different ways to get a hold, but www.nolanfinancialpartners.com is going to be the, the first way to get everywhere.
5: All right. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Women CEO in Reflection. To reach out to one of our guests, their contact is in the description of the show. Do you want a total mindset transformation? Apply to Mindset Warrior, The Art of Intentional Thinking, my personal coaching bootcamp at iamamindsetwarrior.com. And schedule your call with me today thank you hi and welcome to women CEO and reflection a podcast dedicated to personal growth and mental health discussions with women CEOs across the globe it's here where inspired women get candid about what drives them to succeed and the personal challenges they've encountered on their path to success so if you're a woman on a mission this is the podcast you don't want to miss so sit back Relax and let's get candy. Hi, and welcome to Women's CEO in Reflection. I'm your host, Marisa Jones, and I'm joined by my co-host Neil Halley. Today's guest is someone that you absolutely have to know if you are writing a book. Kelly Nataris is an author, speaker, book editor, and entrepreneur. Her career spans 20 years working in New York, working for several major publishing giants. She's edited numerous personal growth books that have become bestsellers, and she speaks regularly at the Hate House Writers' Workshops. Kelly Notaris is the founder of KN Literary Arts, a Boulder, Colorado-based editorial studio that has helped over 2,000 authors get their transformational wisdom and stories onto the page and into the world. Welcome to the show, Kelly. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. This is really great. Um, You know, tell us a little bit about your journey. You have a long history of editing and um, in in the book industry. Um, What what drove you to start your own company and, and you know, go up against some of the major publishers out there um, to do it on your
4: own? Yeah, well, I will say we don't go up against publishers. We work with the publishers because we don't publish. We are an editorial studio, so we prepare authors to get their work to agents and publishers or to self-publish but we are not the publisher. So it actually is a nice place to be in the business because we're complimentary to many of my good friends that run publishing companies or agents. We all really get to work together, which is nice. Mm -hmm. So yes, I I, right out of college, moved to New York, got into the book business. I've always loved books. I was working in a bookstore in college and I thought, how can I do this for the rest of my life? And all of a sudden I met someone who was an assistant at a publishing company and I thought that's what I'm gonna do. So I moved to New York and I got a job at Avon Books, which is um, now, owned by HarperCollins, and that merger happened while I was there, and then I moved over to Penguin to just get a little bit more autonomy and my own list, um, get out of the assistant role, and then from there I moved to Hyperion as a senior editor um, That was is no longer an adult publisher, but they were at the time a really big player in the business. And then I started meditating and truly it was meditation that had me realize I was giving a lot of my life energy. When you're an editor, you really absorb what's what the books are that you're working on. You get into the head of the author. And I wanted to be in the heads of authors who were um, you know, happier and more free and more well than I was. Um, I felt like that was a really good way to merge my own personal journey with my work journey. So I just sort of started meditating and threw it out there literally as a prayer. I'd like to work on books like, like the books that I'm reading for fun. And next thing, you know, I get offered a job at sounds true, which is a spirituality publisher in Boulder. And I moved from New York to Boulder, Colorado. This was in 2006. And I was there for four years, got their book division set up. But honestly, what I love more than anything is working on books and launching things. So I'm not really, it's funny. I am, um, no longer do I really hold the title CEO at my company only because I decided I don't want it anymore. There's no one else to take it. Um, but because that's not really what I like best. I like, working on projects. And so I was bored. It sounds true as the vice president in charge of the creative division, I was ready for something new and I went freelance and then, you know, life just picks you up and takes you where it wants you. And it took me into a deeper relationship with friends. I already had at Hay House and, um, they invited me to start speaking at their conferences, their writers workshops, and the next thing you know, I needed to start a business because I was being flooded by people who wanted me to edit their books and proposals and I couldn't do it all myself. So, it really was an organic process and one thing led to the next and now we're, you know, a seven-figure business with a full-time, you know, team, etc. So, it's become something I did not anticipate originally. I'm proud of it. I'm proud of the people that work with us. I'm proud of our clients and, um, yeah, always though facing all the issues that one faces when one is, is running their own business.
5: There, there are so many challenges with starting your own business. And it seemed like you literally got thrust into it. Was it, was there ever a time and you're working with, with big players? I mean, Hey house is big. Sounds true. is is big. Um, and all your, your former employees, uh, employers, um, Did you ever sit back and go, this is too big for me. I can't do it. Did you ever want to quit and say,
4: I can't do it? You know, I never said I can't do it. That's actually not in my repertoire, honestly. I don't, for better or for worse. Um, I definitely said, I don't know if I want to do this. And there, there have been several turning points where I have, you know, I realized I was taking on all of the parts of the business that I didn't. Like, because I assumed the rest of my team didn't like them as well. And I didn't want to burden my team with the parts of the job that I didn't like. And I found myself saying a lot. This was in probably year, I'm now, uh, we just passed our ninth year in business. And this was probably around year three. I was saying a lot, I'm going to close the business. I'm going to close the business. And one of the women who worked for me said, Hey, I need you to stop saying that because this is my job. And I was like, Whoa, (laughs) and you know, I started thinking and really sat down with her and a couple other people on the team and said, look, I can't do these parts of the job anymore. And they were like, we'll do them. And I was like, really? They're like, yeah, no problem. And I was like, you don't hate that. They're like, no, it's fine. And I was just shocked because I hated those parts of the job. So it was a big learning for me that when I'm doing things I don't love, it's not serving anybody because it's going to make me want to give up. And as the person who's, you know, whose name is on the door, the virtual door of the company, if I give up, then the rest of my team is out of jobs. So I had to be, I had to start being really careful around that kind of thing.
5: That's really great that, um, they, that First of all, that they spoke up. And second of all, that you took action. Because yeah. some people want to do everything by themselves because they don't trust anyone, especially when it's their own business. And they're like, no, I have to do it. I have to do it. But um, the fact that you were able to release that um, just kind of says a lot. And, um, you know, I just I love your company when I when I was writing my book, I you know, a lot of people self-publish. I wanted to make sure that it was right because I was really speaking to, it was my memoir. I was speaking to domestic violence survivors. I was speaking with people who have been through trauma and I wanted it to be well done. I knew I was gonna partner with organizations and nonprofits that support uh, women such as that. So I called your organization after seeing you on a Hay House workshop. And the, the two editors I worked with, there's two different processes. First, I learned so much about editing that I had no clue. I thought I was just pre- proofing my work, but they really helped me double the size of my book. I went from 34,000 words to over 70,000 words and and just really made it such quality. And that's what I get so much about the people who read my book. They're like, it's engaging. I can't put it down. And, uh, you know, I cried, I laughed and, and you know, all of the emotions. And and it's just the quality of, of having those editors. And I, I think that's so important um, to have that when you're putting out a, a transformational books, which is what you focus on.
4: Definitely. And well, first of all, I'm so happy to hear you had that experience. And that really is sort of the experience of our clients. Because I think so many people think they have to do it alone and that it's really up to them to produce the book. And then the editor, like you said, dots the I's, crosses the T's, et cetera. But of course, that's not the case at all. When you're working with a traditional publisher, the editor is in that book with you. And what I wanted to do was give people who are either not yet working with traditional publishers or are planning to self-publish that same access to High quality, intelligent book industry experts, so that they could have books that are as good as the books that are coming out of HarperCollins and Penguin and you know Penguin Random House and all the big publishers. Hay House. And so, I just am really happy to hear that's been your experience because working with an editor is a life changing and definitely a book changing experience. My biggest fear was that. Oh, go ahead, Neil.
0: I was gonna say it definitely is I see my clients that I work with that are authors, you know, working on their social media marketing, all those different things, the amount of money they spend on the process of beginning of, of writing a book. The missing component, I'm sure you agree with me as well, is marketing. A lot yes. of them just don't understand the marketing process. And they don't they think their books just gonna sell without a brand. And that's the biggest challenge is with yourself publishing. Do you have any recommendations for people on ways they should try to create a brand in the process of starting, you know, or of writing a book?
4: Well, yes. I mean, just even understanding the concept of marketing and that as an author in 2022, if you want your book to sell, And there are honestly a couple of reasons why people would write books that they don't necessarily need them to sell. Some people are doing it for, I say their heart or their art, and that is fine. But if you want your book to sell and you want to affect people's lives and change people's lives with your book, you have to accept your role is both the author and the marketer. And that means that you need to do whatever you can to get your voice out there to get your work out there to let people know that the book exists. But also, I often say, and people don't like to hear this, but it's the truth: it's best to build your brand and then your book. Build your brand, build your business, yes. and then yes. then you write your book. Yeah, yeah and too often people, people
0: do it before yeah. they they do, they do it early, too late. They don't have it, and they end up spending so much money that you they should invest in specifically looking at creating something of starting out, building their brand, social media wise service, something before writing that book.
4: Yep. And it's not just because that will allow them to sell more copies, but more importantly in my world is that we have so many people that come to us struggling, not sure what book to write. Should I write this book? Should I write that book? I don't know. And if you have been teaching something to people, real people in real life over the course of years, You don't have any questions about what your book is going to be about. You know what your book is. It's what you've been teaching. You've iterated it. You've worked on it with clients, you know, what works, you know, your process works or it doesn't. And unfortunately too often, I find that people will write a book as the first step thinking the book will be the key to the kingdom. And it's totally not because nobody wants to read a book if they don't know who you are and they don't trust you already. And moreover, they create a process that they claim to be transformational for the book first, And they never run it by anybody but themselves before they put all that time, energy, and money into creating a book. A book is forever. It's on the shelf. It's not going anywhere. Versus creating, I always say, I want you to create an online course first based on the book. Now, this is a little different because, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes you're writing your memoir and there's no online course for your memoir. If you're writing your memoir, that's one thing. But really, if you're writing a step-by-step process-oriented book, create an online course. You can run it four or five times, iterate it, get success stories, make sure it works. Like right now, I'm working with a huge author, brand name author, who has could have written a dozen books by now and had them all be bestsellers. But instead, she's worked on online courses. And now we're turning one of those online courses into a book together. And it is going to be fantastic because she's run that online course enough times to know that it works and it produces results. And so will the book. So that's really my number one marketing suggestion is to actually build your business first, make sure your content works with real live people and that there's an audience that are excited to read your book when it comes out. And then everything else is much smoother sailing. Yeah,
5: because I, I did it all at the same time because when I was publishing my book, I wasn't planning on having a business. It just, you know, that that actually came organically for me after my book was published. I didn't have social media. I wasn't on I wasn't even on Facebook. I, I started from scratch and um, and then I started doing speaking engagements and then people started calling me and asking me for advice. And I've always been a corporate mentor. Um, so I started doing coaching. And now I have a six month program and it's just like, it's just developed over time. Uh, But again, it was building, you know, I didn't have an audience and and I didn't even know what I wanted to do with the book, except I wanted to partner with nonprofits and and just kind of, you know, do speaking engagements. Um, But that's really good advice. I didn't want to say,
4: oh, go ahead. Whereas I'll just say, what I love about that approach is that you were going into it with an open mind and you weren't going into it thinking that that book was going to, you know, make you your fortune. And at that point, it was a creative project for you. That was meaningful that you knew you wanted to do. And we have a lot of authors that come through and do it that way. And they're perfectly happy. They're so proud of the book. They have something that they, a, a dream that they're now holding in their hand. And that is actually why they do it. That's really different than thinking you're going to make money off of it and pouring tons of money into the book and expecting it to, that money to come back to you with book sales. So I just want to say there's, there really are multiple legitimate reasons to write the book, but you need to understand which lane you're in and what to expect. And if you want to make money off of it, build the business first.
5: And I learned that in one of the workshops, because you were talking about, um, the average author only sells 2000 books in a lifetime, in a lifetime. And I was like, okay, so now I actually, I, I joke, but it's like, I use it as a business card now,
1: that's <laughs> it, it. It yeah. you know, it's a
5: business card. It's an introduction to, to who I am and, and what, you know, where the core of who I am and my character. And that's kind of, you know, an introduction of me to people. Um, that's right. <laughs> but I, I love that I have a book because I, you know, on social media I get, you know, mine's about trauma and, and depression and suicide and, and stuff. And um, I get people from all over the world reaching out to me saying, you know, they enjoy my posts and I help them and and so in return I'll ship a book to them for free. Like it, it cost me twenty five dollars to send to Norway or Holland, but I'll do it for free because to me, that was that was the creative part. Like that was my passion on why I wanted to do it. Um, so I I think one of the biggest fears that that I had was making sure that the editor had my voice. That was my biggest fear. How do you how do you help um, how do you help overcome authors' fears around making sure that the content you know their book and their writing especially because you do transformational books how do you make sure that that you can you can um uh you know ensure that they get that from you uh, that their voice will
4: will still be heard right well you know if you're really talking about editing versus ghostwriting or book doctoring which is more involved An editor's job is more often to remove things than to add things. So right there, what we're doing is we're trying to take out anything that's not necessary, any word in a sentence that's not necessary, a paragraph in the chapter that's not necessary, even sometimes a full chapter where it feels like we don't really need this, right? So it's interesting that our editors encouraged you to flesh out your story and make it more rich. That sometimes goes that way, but other times it goes to like, hey, we don't need all this content. A lot of times people have more content than they need. Um, so that's one piece of it, but the truth is that we get into, re- I mean, at KN Literary, we get into relationship with the authors. So it's not like you send in a manuscript and never talk to us. You actually talk to the editor. They get to-